Samoa's government has given almost 280,000 US dollars to the Samoa Victim Support Group, the largest grant for an NGO in Samoa. The government says that 46% of women in Samoa experience some sort of abuse from their partner. Susana Susuiki spoke with Samoa Victim Support Group Chair Georgina Louis about the funding boost and their plans to help eliminate violence among Samoan families. This grant that we've received from the government 30% of that is going to go to the um, Campus of Hope. So it will provide food and medical assistance to our different shelters that we have up there. And then um, <clears throat> 15% of that will go to welfare programs, another 15% to awareness and advocacy. 5% is going to go to the child labour vendors program where we sort of run small projects for the, for the child labour, child vendors, sorry, so that they can, um, you know, go back to school. And then we have um, 10% for our SCSG administrative expenses and um, 20% is going to our men's advocacy program and our youth empowerment uh, program. So the men's advocacy program is a program that we've been running for quite a while now. And um, the, it, the men are referred to us from the courts after offending and they uh, they go through the program, it's sort of like an anger management program. And then the youth empowerment program that we will roll out is we're going around to the high schools to um, try and educate the youth and awareness with the youth about violence against vulnerable people. And then 5% of the funding that we've received is going to go to counselling. So we're going to target the victims of abuse. And that... Hopefully, in the hopefully when we get the next funding, if we're successful with another funding with government, we're going to increase the the counselling um, service provided by SVSG because we want to incorporate the um, people who've already been or the children who have already been through the shelter and are still suffering from trauma but back living with in the communities. So we want to get back out to them and and sort of keep up a level of counselling so that they can reintegrate successfully in the community mm. so yeah sorry that's a bit of a long-winded explanation <laughs> that's okay um thank you for that georgina so let's talk about the work of svsg who does svg yep. support and what does your work involve and what is the history of your um, organization okay thank you so um svsg was started in 2005 by our president president silly new lena chain and her vision was to help women and children who are victims of abuse, uh, mainly to provide them with shelter so that they had somewhere to go. Uh, often here in our community, there is no, not really many places for a woman to go when they've 
been abused and this was uh, a safe haven for them. That's how she started uh, Samoa Victim Support Group. So she 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 did that, and at the time, in the early days, we were, or she was, sheltering um, some of the women and children in, in different homes of the staff and volunteers that assisted, and um, she'd go to the, the police with them and help them um, with their court cases and, you know, just push it through so that they got that protection that they really needed, you know, so that nothing would happen to them again in the future. So that was sort of the inception of SVSG. That was the vision that we had, have. And um, over the years, uh, a lot of people uh, in the community and overseas have gotten behind a Samoa Victim Support Group. And um, we've had a lot of, uh, fortunately, had a lot of donations from some private and public um, bodies who have helped, build, helped us build um, various shelters up at the Campus of Hope. So we've got um, quite a number of buildings up there now. We just recently added the two um, women's shelters that were from the Embassy of Japan. Um, and we've got the, a few more shelters. So probably about six or seven buildings up there that we now house probably on average about 80 to 100 children um, daily. So it's an average. And um, probably about 12 women... 12 to 15 women a month. Mm. Um, so the women women will stay with us for a few weeks until, you know, there's some some um, counselling or some meeting between the partners and they have a little bit of discussion about whether they're going to go through a court or whether they will reunite and that sort of thing. So we try to provide a mediation for couples so that they can, you know, alleviate the, the, the stress of their relationships and, and the violence that sometimes is the outcome. So um, that's what we do. But, I mean, over the years, the, the work of SVSG has really expanded quite considerably because not only do we um, have the shelters where we shelter the children and the babies and the mums and, and women, uh, but we also... Uh, apply for funding for various projects that align with uh, the work of SVSG. So recently we've completed a program called Nufotane Program where we've been going around to selected villages and um, got the, the Nufotane women on board and we've done some um, training with them on uh, various things like cooking, um, sewing, gardening, planting and just to get their small businesses um, up and running or so that they are self-sufficient and they're able to provide for their families. And so that gives them strength within the family unit. There are hopes that at least some women will win their way into the Papua New Guinea parliament in the June national elections. There are currently no women MPs and there have been just seven in the time since independence nearly 50 years ago. Michael Kabuni is a lecturer in political science at the University of PNG and is currently completing his PhD at the Australian National University. We heard from him earlier this week on the upcoming election and on this occasion he spoke to Don Wiseman about the limited preferential vote system but initially focused on the plight of aspiring female politicians. There are no women in the current parliament. I would imagine there are going to be more women standing than before. Would you expect at least some women to get in? That's a really difficult question. I mean, I'm fortunate to say, but I, I don't think many women will win the election. 
there are some really good names like Dalsi Somare, sort of legacy of a father late Michael Somare. There are three candidates for what must be the three seats in the National Capital District, women candidates, and they have profile in public and private sector. So we're just hoping that, you know, these women come through. But I don't think the number will, if, if women are women, I don't think it will exceed five or even three. There's a lot of work to do. The reason why three women won in 2012 was because of the awareness leading up to 2012 elections. The attempts to create 22 reserve seats failed. Attempts to appoint women to the parliament failed. But even though these attempts failed, it generated a lot of debate and brought this consciousness to the voters. And the women candidates rode on this awareness and uh, popularity that was generated. Uh, that didn't happen after 2012. So the end uh, result was that no women won in 2017 and nothing much happened after 2017 as well. The fact that there is this uh, still sitting in parliament, this allowance for 22 seats to be reserved for women, are any male politicians or any political groups likely to pick that up in the near future and run with it and put it get it through parliament yeah the thing about 22 reserve seat was that the constitution itself was amended and the seats were created so there are 22 reserve seats for women but the next step is amending the organic law national and local level government elections so that's called the enabling legislation they failed to amend it and now they switched from 22 reserve seats and they want to amend the constitution this time create five regional seats instead now the last parliament sitting before election will be sometimes this month and we don't know whether the parliament will rush that through they just created uh, seven districts in the last sitting so they might change their mind and just create the five reserve seats but they may not and if they did they would be available for the june election yeah yeah which which is very late but they just demonstrated that they can do something as late as this they just created seven additional districts so would that mean even if they're not women's seats there will be another seven seats yeah there will be seven seats so these are open electorates so it adds to the 89 existing open electorates and then you've got a 22 provincial seats so the women are qualified to contest in all of these but then yeah the women usually don't win so that's why the push for uh, reset seats there's been some talk about making some of those seats at least seats for women well not making some of those seats seats for women but creating reserved seats, additional reserved seats, uh, which means women can contest for all existing seats amongst men, compete amongst men, but there will be a certain number of, if, if the five reserved seats goes, go through, only women will contest the five reserved regional seats, but both men and women can vote for the women candidate. For 20 years or so, PNG has had this limited preferential voting system. Yep. Uh, it's complicated, isn't it? But is it good for PNG? Well, it depends on which aspect of LPV, limited preferential voting, uh, you're looking at. If you look in terms of representation, that is whether the MP has got the mandate of the people to lead, then LPV is a better choice because of the preference allocation. Because before that, under the first past the post, the MPs were winning by sometimes less than 19% of the votes. 
which means 80% of the electorate didn't vote for the MP. So this percentage has increased to somewhere around 30, 35 after the introduction of LPV. So as far as representation and getting a mandate of the people go, uh, LPV is a better choice. But when it comes with its challenges like the counting process, it's uh, sometimes delayed. It also gives option for more corrupt practices to take place, selling, you know, three votes to people. So it really depends. But I think LPV is better than uh, first past the post. The number of informal votes after the, when it was first introduced was very high because the voters are getting used to the system of voting, voting three candidates. But it's been coming down over the years, and that's because people are getting used to using LPV. So with this, as we say, a complicated system, but one that's perhaps got some aspects that are improvements on first past the post and all the other issues that surround PNG elections, despite all of that, PNG is now approaching 50 years of having maintained its democracy since 1975. And that's seen as a pretty significant achievement in a country that is so disparate, isn't it? It's such a different country from one end to the other. Yeah, it is. It's uh, what they refer to as unbroken chain of democracy. So among its peers, countries that gain independence around the same time as Papua New Guinea. It's one of very few success stories of post-colonial countries maintaining democracy. It comes with its challenges. It's just difficult to see uh, whether it's improving. Uh, but as far as, you know, democracy and election goes, PNG has conducted, you know, elections on time. But, you know, you've got issues like zero women in parliament. And, uh, yeah, so that's, it, it's got its challenges. The Secretariat of the Pacific Regional Environment Program's Director General, Kosilato, is moving on after 13 years working with SPREP. He's been replaced by Fiji National Sefania Nawandra this week. Mr. Latu began as the SPREP Deputy Director General in 2008, then came on board as Director General in 2016. He spoke to Elisha Foon about his legacy and the challenges in protecting the Pacific from climate change. You know, when I first started as at SPREP 13 years ago, um, SPREP was just a, a very small organization, you know, 54 staff. We had a budget of about 7 million US dollars. And um, our, our reach was very minimal in the sense that we we weren't as quite well known or, aware, you know, there was little awareness of us, even in the Pacific region, particularly up north in the Micronesian sub-region. One of the things that I, I said to do was to improve on those things. And these are, I mean, these are just some of the key things. They're not everything. When I finished uh, last Friday, I was able to look back and, and see the growth of SPREP and the kind of trajectory of you know, increased, um, I guess, presence, increased reach. Uh, we now have offices in Fiji, Vanuatu. We have a strong presence in have a presence in the Solomons. We also have an office in the, in the Marshall Islands. So, so certainly, I think the reach of SPREP has increased. The presence of SPREP in the region has increased. Um, the budget, you know, for SPREP now is about. 33, 35 million US dollars. So that's five times more than I first started. Um, that I think that speaks of the, of what SPREP is doing. It's not about one person. It's about the collective. It's about the secretariat working closely with its constituency. It's us, you know, um, giving the platform to leaders and, and to our ministers. 
at you know big meetings like you know the UNFCCC COP uh, or the Conference of the Parties on climate change, where you know for the last, if you look at the last eight years or so, you've seen that the voice of the Pacific has certainly been amplified when it comes to climate change, and that's 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 PREP's mandate. That's what we do. What challenges will the new director have to tackle? Well. There's some issues haven't changed much <laughs> in terms of climate change. I mean, the, the the key issue is one of you know emissions. Yeah, that's that's the key issue to really seriously address the problem of of climate change. The problem that we have is that you know with the target the emissions targets that we know from what they call the NDCs or the National Determined Contributions of each country. Um, you look at what we have based on the data. Many countries have targets looking at 2050, 2060, 2070. That's not good enough. The global community has got to seriously, urgently, and take to, to make some really bold decisions. I mean, we need to get everybody on that 1.5 degrees trajectory. We have to. And at the moment, we're looking at at least three degrees increase based on the data and maybe even more. What do you have to say about the latest IPCC report? Yeah, well, it just reinforces all the other previous uh, IPCC reports. They're saying the same thing. It's just that they're now saying, listen, time is very short. We're already seeing the adverse impacts of climate change. When we've got to do something now, not tomorrow, now, today. That is, I think, the most single important issue because... We're seeing sea level rise happening. I already said that some of the islands have gone under. It's already happening. Sea level rise is happening. Um, so, yes, we do need mitigation climate finance, but we now, for us, it's, it's adaptation, but also, um, you know, us, the issue of loss and damage now becomes, a, you know, a, a real issue because but we're getting to the point very soon where we won't be able to adapt any further. Sure. What more can New Zealand do to help the Pacific? I want New Zealand to lead on some of these things, you know, particularly, you know, reduction of emissions and the shift from fossil fuel to, you know, more renewable energy. But it's just having that conversation and looking what are some of the practical ways New Zealand can help Pacific people, particularly islands that are already experiencing, you know, going underwater. My challenge to them is that I want to see more action and leadership on the part of New Zealand. I think New Zealand have been really great They've been a fantastic partner with PREP. They've actually funded, you know, a number of key initiatives that include the Pacific Blue Pavilion for the last two or three years. But, you know, we, we would encourage them to, you know, continue that, that leadership. We want them to continue to speak up against, you know, the use of fossil fuel and, and you know, and carbon neutral by 2030, um, 2050 at, at, at the latest, but no more than that. And we want New Zealand to lead on the NDCs you know, in terms of getting countries to revise their NDCs. Here in the Pacific, four out of the six lowest countries are found in the Pacific. You know, you have Tuvalu, you've got the Marshalls, you know, uh, Tokelau and uh, Kiribati. Uh, uh, Tokelau and Kiribati are no more than two feet two feet high at the highest point. A lot of people don't really connect with the reality of what's happening on the ground. And if nothing is done in the next five years, you are, we are going to see the number of islands disappear, you know, quite high. And we will be looking at relocation, possibly relocation into island or into country, you know, or into sub-region. Yeah, that's a scary thought. So now that you've stepped down, what are your plans? What's next for you? 
I can certainly tell you I won't be sitting around doing nothing, but I do need to have a break. I've been working nonstop for more than 30 years. Just a couple of months break. I can't see myself retiring now. There's more urgent issues that, you know, I think I can be of some some assistance or of some value to the things that are happening in the region. I just need to sit down and figure that out. It had to be something that you know, I'm passionate about. Climate change and environment is, is definitely, you know, up there for me. That's Specific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Mode Manda.